0: Well, good morning, everyone. It is a joy to be here with you. My name is Eric. I am on staff here. My official title is Evangelism and Leadership Training Guy, and um, it is good to be here with you today. We're going to start a very familiar portion of text. We're going to be looking at First Samuel 17. It's the story of um, David and Goliath. If you're familiar with it. Um, This chapter is 58 verses, and I just want to let you know beforehand, um, I'm not Steve. Um, Every week in staff meeting, we go over our text, we read through it, we do a devotion, and I'll pull up these texts in this book, and they're like 74 verses long. And I'm like, how much of that text are you going to do? And he's like, well, I'm going to do the whole thing, but it continues into the next chapter. So I'm going to do those next 30 verses as well. And he's just uniquely gifted. And that is not my thing. I mean, he's so uniquely gifted that when I left being lead guy at my church and got to pick a lead guy to be under, he's the one that I picked. So I like that he can do that. I cannot. So we're going to do three ver- No, we're going to do 16 <laughs> verses. <laughs> Welcome to your um, 14-week mini-series through David and Goliath. Today's sermon is Now the Philistines from verse 1. Um, But in all seriousness, um, I know this is a somewhat rhetorical question because I'm sure we've all been there, but have you ever been in a position in life where what you've done in the past that's always worked isn't working any longer? And the present is really scary. Because not only are you dealing with what's going on in the present, but you're coming to terms with the fact that what you've done in the past isn't as effective as what it used to be. But the real pickle is any possible way forward, you could tell that there's going to be a lot of pain and it's not going to be an easy path. So you just feel stuck, right? This place of indecision isn't going to help me non-decision isn't going to help me, but everything I decide seems as if there's going to be pain behind one of these doors, and I don't like pain. So I'd like to wait until there's a different door available to me. And as you wrestle through the place of indecision, the one thing that starts to become clear is I just cannot stay in this place of indecision any longer. That's what we're going to be seeing in that text, and I resonate with this. It's kind of what brought me here, and I, and I Changed coasts. Um, you know, last time I was in that position was around two years ago. And I found myself just being frightened. Like, it's a fearful place to be in. I had been sensing for a while that it was time to move on, that God had called me to do something, and he had done the work. And um, But what I knew was familiar, right? I, this is it was where I grew up. I, I liked the people that I was ministering with. But it, it just... It didn't feel like God was in it anymore. But moving on seemed so scary. I had all these plans. I was going to do this forever. I was going to be a staple on the Jersey Shore and just keep planning churches. Um, but doing nothing and just ignoring it seemed to make things go worse in my spirit. And I started to just feel a dissonance in my soul. And, and I had a path forward, but the Goliath in this case, the Goliath's name is McMinnville, um, just seemed really scary for being like an East Coast hip-hop kid moving out to a place that you don't really know. Um, it's confusing when you can no longer rest on the past, but the present isn't working, and the future seems terrifying. And the only thing that was more terrifying than door A or door B was just sitting in the middle and looking at both of those doors. So last week, as Steve taught through chapter 16, we saw this choosing and anointing of the young man David. And we also saw that Israel had yet to learn from their mistake in choosing Saul because he was the handsomest, because he was the tallest, because he looked like the best warrior. And we saw that even Samuel the prophet hasn't learned from this mistake, because he was looking at the older brothers of David and thinking we needed to choose David's bigger, taller, more rugged, less ruddy brothers. I don't know what ruddy is, but I know that it's important in the story of David. Um, And this caused God to intervene with the famous words of verse 7 from um, chapter 16. Do not look On his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. As we open this text, we're going to see that they still had not learned that lesson as they're approaching chapter 17. And it's going to lead to this place of just being stuck in the valley of indecision. So our outline for any of you note takers is going to be the battle is inevitable, verses 1 through 3. The opposition is imposing, verses 4 through 11. And the solution doesn't seem obvious, verses 12 through 16. Would you stand as we read verses 1 through 11? and then I will pray, and we'll dig in. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Succoth, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azalea in Ephes-damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up for battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain, one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp Of the Philistines, a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head. He was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was five thousand shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the spear's head weighed six hundred shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him, and he stood, and he shouted to the ranks of Israel, "'Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants.'" And serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And when Saul and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Lord, each of us has known fear. Each of us, Lord, has heard those words that you utter so often fear not. Lord, help us to um, just see how you in the Spirit just constantly reassure your people to fear not, Lord. Help us see that you are nearer than our skin, and it's you who cause us to have faith. Let us grow in our faith in you today, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So our first point, the battle is inevitable. So verses 1 through 3 set the setting for one of the most famous battles in all of Scripture. The Philistines have regrouped and the armies are aligned together for battle. I think I have a map up here for anybody that would like to follow along with that. And they're regrouping right on the outskirts of Israel's territory. If you look on that bottom map where you see Soko and the little red dot and gray dot, they're right on the outskirts of the territory of Judah. And this scene is very familiar to the battle of Michmash that we saw in chapter 14. That was the one where Steve had the great hand-drawn maps for. Um, And it's supposed to be very similar. Like a lot that we're going to read is going to conjure up imagery that we read in that chapter. So you see the Philistines gathered. You see directly to the north of them. You see the Israelite encampment. And then verse 3, it tells us that and they drew up in a line of battle against the Philistines and the Philistines stood on one on the mountain on one side and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side and there was a valley between them so just like the pictures we saw back in chapter 14 there's this ravine you have the armies of Israel up on one side you have the armies of the Philistines, and they're able to see each other from those two mountains. And there's this valley between them. And um, that's why, if you saw the title of my sermon, I called it Stuck in the Middle with You, because you got clowns to the left of them, jokers to the right, and there he is stuck in the middle with somebody that he's not going to want to be stuck in the middle with, as we're going to see in a couple of verses. And you're going to see The valley between them is not merely an explanation of the topography of the land that they were in. This is an indictment against Saul that is going to get so much clearer as the story goes along. Because there was no reason for the Israelites to even be in this position to begin with. God told them in the very beginning of the book that he would have routed the Philistines if they just asked. I mean, it's like it tells us in the book of James, you have not because you ask not. When you ask, it's to spend it on your own pleasures. God told them, ask of me. We know through the Psalms, he said things like, ask of me, I will give you the nations as your inheritance. He wanted to be asked. He wanted to be their father. He wanted to be their king. They didn't have to be in this position. But even once they chose a king for their own own choosing, God himself assured Saul that he had given him everything that he needed to defeat the Philistines. And he said, I am going to rout the Philistines through you. God had already defeated the Philistine armies for them previously. So they should have been at least able to look back and say, God has already done this on our behalf if I just turned to the left a couple of pages. Well, in Hebrew, turn to the right a couple of pages. But they could have seen that God has already acted thusly on their behalf. And when they had defeated the Philistines previously, if they would have just continued the chase, if they would have continued the route, if they would have completely routed those armies, they would not be in this spot, which is interesting because that ends up being a picture of the process of sin and sanctification throughout the rest of this book and throughout the books of Kings and Chronicles. We see that the people refused to cut down the high places. They refused to route the Philistines. They refused to hack Agag to pieces in the last chapter. And you see, because they did not deal with their besetting sin, they always left it there crouching to devour them behind the door. And even in their current crisis, as bad as it was, they could still turn to God at any moment, acknowledge their sin, and repent, and he would still fight their battles for them because he's a good father. Look at this verse from Hosea chapter 5 that bleeds into chapter 6. Do I have a slide of this, Jen? Nope, that's Second Timothy, but that's a great verse, too. <laughs> you can look at that one. If we don't have it, then I'll just... All right. Well, if you have a Bible, if you want to turn to Hosea chapter 5, if you find the big prophets, he's like the next one over after all the big prophets. Okay. This is talking about Israel in another season where they're still just being defeated and routed by all of the armies around them. And they're being utterly destroyed. And the prophet says, when Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, when Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king, but he's not able to cure you. He's not able to heal your wound. Again, they went to somebody that was not God as their king. And he's saying he couldn't heal you, but. Look what God has to say. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I even I will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. I will return again to my place until they what? Just acknowledge. Acknowledge their guilt. Acknowledge. That they had turned their back on their God by choosing Saul to be a man of their own image to fight their fights. Acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and their distress earnestly seek me. That's an invitation that God had for them, had for these guys, has for every single one of you. Anytime we are brought down into the valley, repentance is always an option if sin is what's keeping us in the valley. And look at the promise that comes once it shifts to chapter 6, verse 1. He says, come, let us return to the Lord, for He's torn us. Why has He torn us? You see that? So that He may heal us. He struck us down, and He will bind us up. After two days, He will revive us. On the third day, He will raise us up. Pretty cool language right there. That we may live before Him. And then look at this promise. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as sure as the showers as the spring rains on Oregon that water the earth. like This is saying, if you can be sure it's going to be rainy in Oregon at some point this year, that's how sure you can be, that you can turn to your God and seek His face, and He would turn and heal you, His people. They didn't have to be in this position. This was a valley of their own creating. And I want to be clear, in case there's anybody that's in a valley here, Not every time you're in a valley is it your own choosing. Sometimes the circumstances of this world, sin, the sin of others, can put you in a really rough spot. But sometimes that is the case, and that's the solution here. The valley between them is going to factor really prominently coming up, even in Goliath's taunts, which is what we're going to look at next. Look with me at verses 4 through 11. He says, starting in verse 4, and there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. And I, I've had a lot of thoughts before going into this section on Goliath, because um, who here has ever heard of David and Goliath before? Let me get a show of hands. All right. Who here has ever heard a teaching for, about David and Goliath before? Can I get a show of all right, almost the same amount of show. This is such a well-known passage, and there's been so much good teaching on this passage over the years. But it's also been maybe the passage in the Bible that's presented in the most goofy ways over the years as well. It's been treated as almost a metaphor of sorts. Like, we need to get out there and tackle all of our Goliaths. And the story turns into this moralistic kind of uh, self-help speech. Like, identify your Goliaths. And get out there and conquer them like David did, right? Um, we know that that doesn't cut the mustard because the Bible isn't about David. It's, it's about Jesus. So um, that teaching gets goofy. But in recent years, guys like Tim Keller have brought a lot of course correction to that kind of, of goofy teaching. And they've done so much good work on this passage where they just show the gospel through it. But we could even get goofy in that manner. Like, where we start to say, like, this passage isn't really about David and Goliath. It's about the true greater-than-David defeating our greater-than-Goliath problem with sin. And David's victory is imputed to us, even though we never lifted a stone to accomplish it. That's good truth, right? That'll that'll preach. But let's not forget that there's an actual Goliath in this passage, right? I don't know if we have any Three Amigos fans out there. If you're not, then you should repent. But... There's that scene where he's talking to them about the different el guapos they face. And it's like for you, your el guapo, maybe this, your el guapo maybe this. But for us, our el guapo is an actual el guapo. That guy el guapo. So for this passage, our Goliath, David's Goliath, was the actual Goliath. So I don't want to just spiritualize or metaphor him away. Um and these next seven verses make the case that the actual Goliath is really, really imposing. Um, you know, with this, these next seven verses, something that's interesting, this, this is the most attention that is ever given to any of the enemies of the Lord in anywhere in Scripture. And this is the most attention that's given to any type of battle array in any t- um, place in Scripture. So it's like the Holy Spirit... Wanted this story to be a big story for us because it's a really cool story, right? So, some things about David. He's first identified as the champion of Gath, a champion named Goliath of Gath. Gath is one of the five Philistine cities. You got Gath, Ashkelon, Ekron. That's those three cities, I mean. And there's (laughs) two others. And he shares his title. He, he's the champion of the Philistine armies. And this was a really popular concept in the ancient world, but not so much in biblical literature. If anybody's ever read the Iliad, I know you guys love that stuff, right? And you're, uh, but if you, if you know the battle with Achilles and Hector... Yeah, where they put forth their two champions and whoever wins, the one army will serve the other army. It was very popular within culture around this time, 1000 BC, which was close to around when Homer would have been writing. But this is pretty unique to the Bible, this idea of champions. Um, These two champions will fight and determine the fate of their nations. And an even more fascinating concept then the uh, concept of champion is the word itself the word tra- the word champion literally translates to the man of the between the man of the between in hebrew and it gives such a vivid picture Think of that map again and where the battle was encamped. And you had the armies on one side. You had the armies on the other side. You had this valley in between. And now you have this giant thundering out, I am the man of the between. Where is your man of the between to fight for you? It's powerful. The man of the between. He's like an intercessor of death. Standing between God's people and, and destruction, and then it goes on to describe his height. In verse four, it says that he's six cubits. That's nine foot nine. Um, so it's just an utterly massive human. He's cartoonishly big, right? Like you're supposed to look at this guy and just think, "Oh my goodness, this is imposing." Um, I used to be a youth pastor, and we had a bunch of freakishly large. Students in my youth group. Like they were enormous. And we had this one kid that ended up playing uh, left tackle on a Big Ten football team. Um, he was 6'8, 360. And he gets saved, and that dude listened to the foulest rap music in the world before he gets saved. And I'm on a retreat with him one day, and I'm listening to some Christian hip hop. And he's like, man, this stuff is so good. And he's banging his head to it. He's like 16 and doesn't realize that he's the size of Goliath. And we pull up next to these people in a red light. And they're blasting like the same kind of foul rap music that he used to listen to. And bless his heart, he just thought he was being an evangelist. He gets out of the car and pounds on their hood and goes, you shouldn't listen to that music. That's fine. It's just water. I'll clean it up. You need to listen to something better. The guy in the car was just like, yes, sir. And we gave him a CD and I was just like, clearly, like this is just, he's looking at this cartoonish man telling him that he should turn off his music. And I mean, that's what it must have been like when you're seeing this nine foot nine man. And then look in verses five and six as it describes his armor. He says he had a helmet of bronze on his head and he was armed with a coat of mail This this coat of mail, the word that it uses here, describes dragon scales. And it's saying, this nine foot nine man is covered in dragon scale armor made of bronze. And look what it says about this armor. He says that it weighs... Uh, the coat was five thousand shekels of bronze. That's 126 pounds. So before you're even fighting, you're carrying another human strapped to you, basically, as you walk into battle. And then in the rest of verse six, he had armored freaking legs. Like how? That's not even fair. You're nine foot nine, and even your legs are covered in armor. He had a bronze armor on his legs. A javelin of bronze. Javelin's not the right term. If any of you know what a scimitar is, like the curved blades that you see mostly in Arab- Arabian areas of the world. He had a long scimitar strapped to his back. This is a terrifying, imposing figure. Then it goes on to say that he had a shaft in verse 7 of his spear. was like a weaver's beam. That's discussing the size of it. I don't know much about weaving and weaver's beams, but all the commentaries say what it's trying to say is it's a really massive spear. Um, It's like a weaver's beam, and it was... Where we at? This is hard for me to follow this morning. And his spearhead weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. That's saying that just the head of his spear weighed 15 pounds. If you can imagine that. Just a little piece of history for any of you history geeks out here. It's really neat how the armor goes back and forth from bronze to the iron tip. Um, If you look at the dates of the transitioning between the Bronze Age into the Iron Age... Most of them will date it between 1100 to 800 BC, which have been accurate during this time. So you see these Philistine armor makers, like Steve was talking about a couple of weeks ago, they're actually keeping up with the times and outfitting him with the latest and greatest armor as it transitions into the Iron Age. And not only does he have all of this, it says his shield bearer went before him. The term shield there, there were two types of shields in the ancient world. There was like your Captain America shield, right? And then there was a shield that was a full body size shield. He's nine foot nine. What do you think you'd have to look like to be the shield bearer to be able to carry a nine foot nine? This wasn't like one of the little pages from Monty Python and the Holy Grail, right? Like this, his shield bearer had to be a giant on top of that. And for some reason that counts as part of Goliath's armor. Like he gets another giant to just stand in front of him with a giant shield. How terrifying. And then in verses 8-10, through you begin to see his taunts. Look with me at verse 8. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Man, what a terrifying question. The emphasis, actually, in the Hebrew is on the you. It's why have you come up to draw up for battle? I don't know if you've ever been in a fight or a skirmish of any kind, but if the person just looks right into the window of your soul and says, why have you come up to me for battle? See, Henry's not scared because he knows he could take me, but (laughs) that would scare most people. I just picked the wrong person to (laughs) use the illustration with. Um, Terrifying. He is just trolling them, if you will, to take the hearts out of them. And then he asks another question. Am I not a Philistine? The grammar here, the definite article should actually be a the. He's saying, am I not the Philistine? When you look at all Philistines, am I not the embodiment of what a Philistine warrior should look like? And then the next question, but aren't you just slaves of Saul? I'm the Philistine, and you're going to send your servants to come and fight me. So he's trolling, but he's also agitated by it, seemingly. And then he asks the most damning question of the whole chapter. It's not a question. (laughs) Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down here. That language should sound very familiar with you, because Samuel's used it twice already in this book to describe what they've already done. You have chosen a man from yourselves who is head and shoulders. This is the language that was used of the choosing of Saul. So as he sits there and defies them and says, Choose a man from among yourselves. The answer is we already have. But they've lost so much faith in Saul that nobody's raising their hand to give that as a viable option forward. Man, it must have been disheartening to know that they've asked for a man because they thought that they would be in this position. And now they're in this position, and they're being told, choose for a man among yourselves. And Goliath asks for the champion to come down to the valley. So the man of the between says, I'm going to be down here in the valley between these two armies. Bring your man of the between to come down and face me. And Saul's and Israel's response Is fear. Look at verse 11. It says, When Saul and Israel heard these words, the words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Dismayed does not do this word justice. It means shattered. They were shattered when they heard this taunt. I mean, choose from among yourselves. Let's just think about that one more moment before we go on to our final point. It didn't have to be that way back to the verse that I showed in the beginning from 16:7 in the previous chapter the people don't choose what God chooses that's where this book is going do you see that i mean so many people love to talk about choice hey it's it's my choice it's my choice it's my choice when you look at when you look at the bible left to our own devices we consistently choose bad all the time it's like Anything that I do that's worthwhile, blame Jesus. Literally everything else is probably my fault. Um, they don't get it. They didn't have to be here. And now Samuel's just tightening the noose a little bit, and he's going to drop some clues in our final four verses to show this was of your own choosing. Look at 12 through 16. It says, Now David was the son of an Ephraite of Bethlehem and Judah, named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to battle, and the names of his three sons who went into battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him, Abinadab, and the third being Shammah. So we have Saul introduced again. In, oh, yeah, I spilled it so I can't drag it. Um, He's the son of Kish. He's a Bethlehemite. Is there you are I could have done that more easily than you, too. Thank you, Randy. Um, verse 13, we see that he puts forth the three oldest brothers again, again. We're seeing some intentional echoes of the last chapter. The three oldest are again named. But what do we know about the three that were named from the last chapter? Anybody remember? God sums it up. He did not choose them. It certainly brings back again echoes of 16.7 that man does not choose as God does because man looks at the outward appearance. The Philistine is asking for the people to choose a man. The guy that they've chosen is not up for the task. And now they're sending three more people who have already been rejected by the Lord to go fight for them on the battlefront. Verses 14 and 15 says, David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came out and came forward and took his stand mourning and evening, So we have David beginning to be introduced here in verse 14. And as he's introduced, I'm sure you guys have probably heard this old joke where there's a man and he's he's about to die in a flood and he's about to be drowning and he's on top of the building right and the floodwaters are rising and he's praying to God to save him and he says God would you uh, would you save me and a boat comes by and says jump in we'd like to rescue you and he says no 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 I'm waiting for God to save me and then a helicopter comes and drops the ladder and he says no no I'm waiting for God to save me and then he dies right and, and he goes to heaven, and, and he says, like, God, what was up? I thought that you were going to save me. And he says, I sent you a boat and a helicopter. How much more do you want? And that's the way that this story is reading, right? Like, it's supposed to be so obvious. Choose from a man from among yourselves. Choose a man. Choose a man. Choose a man. And God's saying, I chose one already. And in case you forgot, I'm going to reintroduce him for the third time so far in this story to show you that you do not continue to have to choose a man you can trust in god instead so he's going to bring david and i want to just point out something to you for the benefit of your soul there's a reason that god sent david god wants to save do you understand that not only can he save not only is he mighty to save God wants to save. God loves you. God sent David because he knew that that was the one that was going to protect his children and save them. I mean, think of the title that was yelled at Jesus when he came in during the triumphal entry. Does anybody know what it was as he enters into Jerusalem and they shout, Hosanna, save us now. And he receives that praise from them because it's the very thing that he desired to do. So our passage ends with those further taunts from David and from Goliath. And we're going to see how that's dealt with in next week's passage. But I wanted to give you guys just a couple of points of application. For anyone that feels like they're stuck in the middle, maybe you're in the valley between two hard sides. And I just want to give you a couple of thoughts from our text by way of application as we close. Number one, and I think I'm going to have these up, there's, and I can email them out if anybody wants them. Is it possible that you're looking as man sees and focusing on outward appearances? I know for me that when things look overwhelming, it's because I look at the overwhelmingness of the situation and I'm not looking at the bigness of my God. And when I focus on the overwhelmingness of a situation rather than the bigness of my God, God seems smaller to me and the situation seems so much larger and so much scarier. Point two, have you ever routed the Philistines or hacked a gag to pieces or the Philistines of the past returning to bite your heel? We see this refrain, especially throughout all of the Old Testament. The people refuse to cut down the high places, and they continue to go back to the high places. They, can, they refuse to rout the Philistines, and they're still continuing to be tempted by the Philistines. They refuse to remove the gods of the nations from the land, so they continue to be enticed after the gods of the nations. Ask yourself, like, have you killed sin? through the power of the gospel, or is sin still nipping at you? And if you're playing with it, know this, they kept playing with the Philistines over and over, and that's how they got themselves in this situation. So don't play around with your Philistine sin, brothers and sisters. Hack egg egg to pieces. Number three, have you sought to honor me before the people, a.k.a. saving face, over genuinely seeking the Lord's will and direction. Saul could have gotten out of this situation back in chapter 15, verse 30. But he takes the opportunity to ask Samuel, wait, wait, wait. Just make sure you honor me and make me look good for the people because I don't want to save face in this situation because the pain of not saving face to him was greater than the pain of not having intimacy with his God. Consider that. And if we get to that place where it's appearances and images, then why would we be surprised if his voice is hard to hear in a season? Number four, have you ever identified your fear and asked yourself, "What am I not believing about God? That's probably the one that's just most clearly from the arc of our text today. God wanted to do so much more for them than they knew, than they could understand. that they believed there's so much that they were believing about the trial and simultaneously not believing about their savior number five has god already sent you help but you're waiting for the lord to save you and the last one and um, brian um, worship team you, you can come up have you genuinely sought out the true man of the middle I'd like to read a scripture for you as we close. It's from 1 Timothy 2.15, and it says that there's but one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So as Goliath presents himself as the man of the between against God's people, Paul tells us in the pages of the New Testament that we have the true man of the between. For there's one mediator One mediator that can stand between God and man, and that's the man Christ Jesus. And where he is, through faith, there we shall be also. So I encourage you, if your back is against the wall and you're in a ravine, With mountains on both sides that are heavily reinforced, seek the man of the middle. Seek the one who ever liveth to make intercession for your soul who is seated at the right hand of the Father interceding on your behalf. Jesus, thank you for being the man who bridged the chasm that sin and death was unbridgeable, Lord. Thank you that through your death on the cross, Lord, that you gave us mercy. And God, I pray for any strugglers today who feel like they're stuck in in the valley, in in the pit of indecision. By your spirit, Lord, would you just tenderly speak to their hearts, Lord? Would you lead them, guide them beside still waters for your name's sake, in Jesus' name. Amen. Brian can confirm that this is true, that I asked for a different song to close us, and that's why preachers should preach and musicians should lead music, because that was the perfect song. Thank you. I really appreciate you. Um, <laughs> I'm happy to be wrong. Um, I'm, there's going to be some people up here to pray with you if you have any need of prayer. I'd like to read Psalm 23 as our benediction, and then I'll... Um, You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all of the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Lord, thank you that you are with us in the valley. Lord, thank you that we can always turn to you, our Abba Father, and that you are always happy to receive your children. We love you. We ask that you would fill us with your spirit as we leave this place. Help us to be missionaries in the places where we live, work, and play. In Jesus' name, amen. You're excused. See you next week.